The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you're listening once more, welcome back. Thank you for your company. Tyron Park is one of the busiest creatives working in Australia. So it was a win to finally get him to sit down and record this long-awaited episode of the Stages podcast. As an in-demand director, he recently completed a season of Sondheim's Anyone Can Whistle for neglected musicals in Sydney. A recent announcement heralds that he will be directing Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom in 2023 for seasons in Melbourne and Brisbane. He accomplishes these creative pursuits with roles that include running the musical theatre course at the Victorian College of the Arts, being the artistic director of the Australian Musical Theatre Festival and countless contributions as guest speaker for various arts organisations. There is much to being Tyron Park. So here's an opportunity for stages to find out what makes Tyron go tick, tick, but certainly not boom. In this compelling episode, see what I did there? Tick, tick, boom. Yes. All right, here's my chat with Tyron Park. You know when you do, you know we have those schools performances or whatever, and people put up that. You know, let's do question and answer, and they go, "How do you remember your lines?" You go, "Oh God, is that what we're going to talk about?" Yes, <laughs> often that is the one. Isn't it? <laughs> How do you learn your lines? <laughs> yeah, good question. Now, Tyron Park, um, how lovely to see you. How lovely to see you. It's taken us a couple of hours to get around to this conversation after several months. That's right. It's been a long time coming, but I've been. I'm so happy because I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I've listened to all of these podcasts. Some of them I've listened to many times. Oh, you need to eat life. I need to go. I go back though. Take I go the back and I. Twelve step program. I've such, got such a bad memory that they are, they're new again when I go back to them. And no, I'm delighted that that you fangirled out on them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now it's really lovely to know that there are, that people out there appreciating them, and um, uh, and I know that you're one of them, and then sharing them with your students. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Well, it's kind of what we're talking about before about. Um, you know, you know, young people, they, they're not that interested in who's come before and what that looks like. So it's just great to have conversations about it, not just go, here's a, you know, here's something from a book. 
So that's been really, really great. So thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> so we're going to talk about all sorts of things in this conversation because there are many strings to your bow. I'm not quite sure how you managed to sort of fit it all into your day. But you see how tired I look. <laughs> true, true. Um, yes, but, but director, administrator, teacher, guest speaker. Perform, do you still perform? Uh, not a lot. I did last year, I did Next to Normal, but that was for quite specific reasons. It's not that I don't... Um, it doesn't. It's not worth the amount of time that I need to give it to perform in a way. And because I'm so lucky because of the VCA that... If I'm going to spend time away for students, I don't think it's worth. I don't think it's right to just go and perform. If I'm directing something that feels somewhat different, or if I'm giving a, you know, if I'm doing research or giving one of those speeches or whatever, that's different. But I don't really miss it either. So I always end up being in the shows that I direct. You know, like there's constant, constant um, me going on for people. Always, I've got photos of every. The, your your Hitchcockian cameo. The you know it's it's. But sometimes it's not even, you know, up the back. There was one time when I did a, you know, David Hobson in concert. I had to go in for David Hobson. Right. <laughs> that was a whole other thing. Yeah. Wow. But that happens a lot. I think producers know it now and they go, oh, we've got, we've got a director okay, and we've got... A yeah. Steppy understudy as well. Yeah. It was really great when, when Todd McKenney had to do it, learn the tightrope. I was like, I can never go on for this. It's wonderful. It's really good. Did he have a cover in the barn? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it meant that we had to do that very properly, which was great. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, you know what I miss? What? I miss um, cast recordings when they were LPs. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're, you're a little bit younger than me, but um, those times where you would go down to, I think, Ava and Susan's in Sydney... Um, in Melbourne, it was readings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'd go down there and you'd mm-hmm. flick through all the mm-hmm. LPs. And especially my favourite days were when the new Sondheim show had come in, mm-hmm. and you'd take it home, put on the record player, and just sit there for two hours, lay there for yep. two hours, yep. and just absorb it all, every word, mm-hmm. every musical note. Mm-hmm. Fantastic! It's too easy now when people can stream. I know. It's that 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 experience, whole experience, immersive experience, is gone. That shared thing you talk about, like that is something that I know you and I share and I know lots of people share, but I do remember, because the kind of albums that we're talking about, they weren't available at Brashes. Remember Brashes? Yeah, yeah. They weren't right available there. Mr. B. <laughs> so I remember really specifically wanting Bernadette Peters in Song and Dan- in like, Tell Me on a Sunday. Yeah. And you just couldn't get it anywhere except for Ava and Susan's. And, you know, when you'd find it as well, or you'd find an Australian cast album. Remember the strip of, there was heading down to the Capitol Theatre, there were a strip of um, old second-hand yeah, record shop. shops. Yeah, yeah. And you'd just, you know, I'd catch the train from Newcastle to go and see a show and I'd make my way along the second-hand record store and see what records I could find. And if you found Australian cast recordings, because they weren't, you know, very widely released, I guess, that was a winner. I've yeah. still got them. I can't part with them. They're, they're, they're gold. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Mm. I've been listening to Into the Woods, the new cast mm-hmm. recording mm-hmm. Uh, all day. And, mm. and uh, having that's, I think, what promoted uh, that question then um, of what I miss. Uh, it just wasn't the same. Uh, it's great to hear new voices giving new mm-hmm. interpretations mm-hmm. Of, of roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I longed for those days of the LP and, and that whole, whole experience. Mm. Um, number of shows which have been re-recorded several times I think of Gypsy we've mm-hmm. got a number of yeah. Mama Roses yeah thank uh, goodness yeah which is 
it's fascinating to hear the different take from different performers. Yeah. Um, Chicago, I've got a lot of. Yep. And Nine. Oh. And oh, the, yeah, of course. The Broadway yeah, one, the Australian yeah, one. Of the, course, um, yeah. The Broadway revival. revival. Yeah. The yep. English one with Jonathan Price. Yeah, I love that Jonathan Price one. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, but that was that. Uh, could you imagine? Like, I feel sad that we'll never get a new Sondheim score. You know that the, the anticipation for those things. I don't really know who I have that anticipation for yeah. now. Um, it is. It's very sad. Uh, but it was lovely going to see Cinderella recently, and to experience a new Rogers and Hammerstein. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. That, that, that's what that felt absolutely. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I completely agree. You're in Sydney at the moment, uh, staging Sometimes Anyone Can Whistle for neglected musicals. Yep. Um, it's fabulous that we can hear these scores mm. via presentations mm-hmm. from uh, from Michelle Guthrie. Mm-hmm. But Sondheim was a, a gentleman, a, a practitioner, a creative who you met. Yeah, a few times. I was so lucky. I mean, I, I still feel that that's an extraordinary thing that I did meet him and met him at, an, at a number of times. Um, I met him originally when I was about to do Sunday in the Park with George, I think. And I boldly kind of said, could we have a coaching or something? I don't even know how I got I got in touch with him. Um, Which is quite astounding. But now after he's gone and you see that Instagram, yeah, Sondheim letters, the letters, the number of people who wrote to him and he wrote, he wrote back, back to everyone. Well, you know, and you talk about Sondheim and how generous he was. How Prince, like this is going to be a name dropping thing, but... How Prince, I, I haven't experienced generosity like that for someone of that stature in Australia. You just think, well, they're so busy. You know, they're so busy. I, I once met Hal Prince in his office and he got up. We're talking about designs. He had all these books about He's so into theatre design. And he got up to go to the bathroom and I just looked at his kind of calendar sort of, you know, that was on the desk, his desk calendar, and it just had Tyrone Park and an arrow through the whole day. And I was like, oh, I'm here for the day. Like, we're just we're just talking. Um, and I was really lucky with Sondheim because, I mean, he was, as you probably know, he did, he was, I was always terrified of him, of course, because he didn't, I knew enough about him that I knew that he didn't like small talk. And I would feel really comfortable and really like, I can have this conversation. We can, we can meet as artists. And he'd often be upstairs and you probably heard the stories. He's got a chair. Did you ever meet him? No. He's no. got a chair in his room in the kind of, the living room and you'd you know you get the instructions you sit in the chair sometimes sits there it was always the same the um, instructions from his from PA. the house yeah from the housekeeper essentially would go this is how it's going to work it was always the same you know it was it was that's how he liked it and you'd be sitting there and you'd think oh great okay you look around you'd have all the, all the games you know he had all those amazing games that he'd made around the room and then you'd think oh, i can have this conversation and then he'd you'd hear the voice going you know i won't be a second and you think Oh my God, that's, that's Stephen Sondheim is about to come downstairs. Or you'd be having a conversation and he'd go, well, you know, that's when we wrote West Side. And you just go, you're talking about West Side Story the way we talk about the school play. Like, that's when we wrote West Side. Um, and I was very lucky. I had several conversations with him and the last one being just before the pandemic. And uh, I we were going, we were, I was meeting him at his place and... We, he was then going to see a, an off-Broadway revival of Merrily We Roll Along. And he said, well, look, ride with me to the theatre. And I did, and it let him out at, you know, he got, we both got out of the, the cab um, at Times Square. And he said, look, I'm fine, I'm going up this way. And I kept walking and I looked back and I thought, look, I reckon this could be the last time I see Mr Sondheim. And um, 
he looked so old. Like I looked back and I thought, oh my God, that's like, he actually was sort of holding the wall right. to get his balance as he yeah. walked up the street. And I thought, all these people in Times Square walking past him, not knowing who he is. And that's Mr. Sondheim going up that, that street. I just, I'll never forget that image of him as an old man, just like all of us will be old men, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and just thinking, oh my gosh, he, you know, uh, there was something for all the awe I had for, and have for him to see his frailty was, was kind of um, quite, quite um, challenging in a way, but also quite a special thing to see and, and feel that his humanity somehow in that. How did the meeting come about? Um, look, years ago, I was doing a, a, a piece. After I did Sunday in the Park with George, I kind of went, well, my career is stuffed as an actor because, you know, there are some shows, I don't know what the one would be for you, but there are some shows where you go, the author is saying the same thing that you want to say about life. So you, as a result, I could act that show for my life. Like it's the the well that you draw on for that it's like breathing. So, well, that's I, said to be his most autobiographical show, too, mm, isn't it? Mm. Like yeah, and there's something about just what that piece is about that just really speaks to me, aside from the music and all those things. And I did this crazy research trip where I went everywhere. I went and I literally went, I'd visit George's grave. I went to Chicago, I saw the painting. I, and I met James Lapine and I met Sondheim. I feel so pretentious saying Sondheim, you know, because I don't know him. I met him, but I don't know him. Um, and after after doing Sunday in the Park with George, I, I sort of thought, I don't really know what else I want to do. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to be in the ensemble of Mary Poppins or whatever was coming up. So I thought, what do I do? And so that was when I thought I should, I should make something of my own. And my older brother is um, a very famous photographer. And so I sent... Um, his photographs to various composers around the world and asked them to write a song to go with a photo. And I ended up with an ex- like an cr- extraordinary bunch of songs from people like um, uh, Jeff Blumenkrantz and David Shire and uh, Amanda McBroom and John Bacchino and a lot of wonderful Australian writers like Maddie Robbo and you know so many it was great of course I wanted one from Sondheim and so we met and he loved the photos and in the course of the conversation he asked me about my brother and he asked me about my family and he said that should be the show you need to write that show and I said well um would you write the music and he said no I'm really busy <laughs> and then I said well will you write one song for this like compendium and he said I don't write one song I only write whole scores and I said you're happy to I can write the you can do the whole score I'll just tell everybody else to bugger off and he and he said no but we just then I guess we just kept in contact and because yeah. I then did so many of his shows we would connect every now and again what advice did he give you about the business or about making art uh, he, I, I, it's interesting. I didn't really seek it from him because he was so well documented. Um, one of the things I find, you know, those great the Bibles, finishing the hat and look, I made a hat. Those, yeah. those two kind of uh, the biographies that he wrote about his work. I have a slight, I'm slightly uncomfortable with those because part of what I love about working on his work is uncovering the puzzle and finding things in myself I didn't know. And so when it's written out, I sort of don't want to know. I kind of, it's this like, oh, don't give me the cheat, you know, the cheat book to Sondheim. Let me find it. Let me work out what that means. Um, and I guess in the same way, I didn't really seek out advice as such. Um, 
it was really interesting and it was really um, very sharp of him, which is no surprise that he he immediately went to my family and he said there is something there and that's why that when you create something that's where it's coming from and of course he had a very difficult relationship with his mother and um, so it wasn't so much advice but you know often it was just it was talking about his back garden he told me all about his back garden he could talk about anything and I was you know yeah I was in love you'd listen you'd listen Um, do you have a favorite Sondheim lyric or, or song Oh, this is interesting. I was looking at, um, uh, there's a fabulous lyric in um, uh, Leave You, Leave You, How Could I Leave You, where there's so many internal rhymes. And I was looking at it the other day going, how do you, how do you do that? Um, I'm just trying to think what it was. Um, it was kind of, um, oh, oh, I'll remember it later. I also, have, I've always enjoyed careering from career to career. I always think that's wonderful. Um, there are so many. It's part of why anyone can whistle is, like there's some great stuff in there in there that you just go wow who would have thought to rhyme that um oh look it's all pretty wonderful i just you know it's your heart's home working on that kind of material yeah absolutely and we must point out to the listener too that by the time they're listening to this mm-hmm. anyone can whistle will, will have been a great hit will have been a great hit absolutely <laughs> um you're an avid letter writer um, you've yeah. done that all through, yeah. through your life. Um, I believe you wrote to Delia Hannah yeah. earlier on, yeah. and um, that started a great friendship as well. Yeah. Um, it's it's important um, to to reach out, I guess, occasionally to to your heroes or to people you admire or or look up to to um, to let them know what they mean to you, I guess. And, I think so. You I don't was... necessarily set out to to establish a long term relationship. No, with no, them. it's. Uh, it's just the pearls of wisdom, I suppose, if you're a hungry student. Yep, it's definitely that. It's also the fact that over time, because it used to be that, it used to be like, tell me what I should be doing and tell me, like, let me have it, let me kind of have a moment, give me a pearl, you know. It was. It used to be that. Now it's something about not feeling alone in the work because I've found that I, you know, I reach out to people like John Doyle who runs Classic Stage Company and he's just, you go, well, what could we possibly talk about? And we find we have so much in common or Lonnie Price. Um, and I go, isn't that interesting actually? You, you assume because they're in New York or they're somewhere, they're glamorous and da, 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 that they're working on in different ways. They're working in, in, in um, when, when you get down to the bottom of it, they're kind of, they're coming from the same human experience you are. And in fact, I think I learnt that through Sondheim musicals because I thought, I can be intimidated by Sondheim, but the fact is he's writing these kind of songs which show that he's intimidated by people as well. He knows that experience. So there's something about the humanity of it that has never really bothered me. Like I've never been particularly starstruck and worried about um, kind of approaching people and it's always turned out rather well. I mean, Delia Hannah and I wrote for 20 years, you know, which was, wow. which was amazing. Wow. Yeah. And you eventually worked with her too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I did. So I literally wrote to her when she was, she was in the first show I ever saw. She was understudying um, Debbie, as she was then, Debbie Byrne, um, in Les Mis. And I wrote to her and she wrote back. And of course, this is like, I was uh, like 12 or something. And so even getting letters, like getting letters in the mail, like that, that happened when you were 12. Um, and so getting something, she would, she was a beautiful artist, so she'd often paint things and it's been interesting actually. It's, I, I directed her in a workshop of Our House, um, which is a, a great musical. Um, and it, it was wonderful 
But it was also interesting to see that, you know, I can't, I, I can't admire her anymore. I think she's truly remarkable. Um, but it was interesting when I directed her to realise that, like every actor, they need a director, like I do when I act. Yep. And, and that that was the, the relationship we were in and that was what we were pursuing together. And so all the years of fan mail were all kind of behind us. They were in our backspace, as we call it, and then we were moving forward. I can't believe that Les Mis was the first show you ever saw. Yeah. Yeah. You are a baby. Oh, hardly. Oh, my gosh. I've seen it a bazillion times since. But what an amazing show to see for the first time. Yes. Mine was Barnum with Bridge Livermore. Oh, I knew that about 82. you. How did you know that? Well, you've talked about it on your podcast. Oh, my God, yeah. yes. Yeah. You do need to take this 12-step program. <laughs> um, now, tell me, Tyron, why is musical theatre such an essential theatrical form for the world? For the world? Look, I think there's something in... You know, I often talk to people about, you know, if you know what if you if you talking to your you know your uncle who hates musical theatre or your brother or your, you know what do they hate about it and it's often like oh I hate that people burst into song and all of that um, I feel like people um, generally love music and I f- whatever kind like everyone has their own tastes about what style of music but I think music's very important in people's lives and I think story is like extremely important at the VCA we've just between us, we've talked about um, uh, changing the degree to instead of um, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Musical Theatre, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Storytelling, just because it puts, it, it values what it's all about for me, which is about why, why is this important to share this in this way? So for me, when, when music and story come together, that is just, it's, there's nothing like that. That is so, it can touch you in a way that I, I haven't experienced other places. And I feel like when people diss musical theatre, I mean, what is musical theatre? Like right now in Melbourne, you can go and see Hamilton or you can go and see, uh, or Six just finished, but you can go and see Cinderella. You can go and see like Nine to Five. There's so many different kinds of musical. Um, and I'm really interested the thing that interests me about the whole thing, you know, acting, singing and dancing is just as storytellers, how we use those. And musical theatre is changing and continues to change. And I love that. I love being on my toes with it. So I feel like it's universal because, I mean, a lot of people talk about it as escapism and that's fine. That's great. Like, gosh, there were worse things to, to go and do for escapism. But I, you know, obviously the, the shows that I'm drawn to are the shows that also make us reflect. And one of the reasons I love Anyone Can Whistle is that it really puts the audience in the world of the play and makes them think. Like, you know, the famous end where they clap the audience. Um, so the audience are confused about who is, you know, who is considered sane in this world and who is not. Um, it, you know, that that's all. That's the stuff that I get off on, is like messing around with people now. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost a lot of those creators from the golden age of musicals. Rogers and Hammerstein, Leonard and Lowe, Jerry Herman, Stephen yeah. Sondheim, yeah. Hal Prince as a, yeah. as a, a practitioner. Um, the elder statesmen of, of the composers seem to be Stephen Schwartz now. <laughs> um, so who were the new... He'd be horrified, I reckon. <laughs> but, but that's the mantle that he's now got. Yeah. Because uh, he's sort yeah. of one of the last... I suppose so. Last... Men yeah. standing, yeah. yeah. Um, if only there were a few more last women standing Completely. as well. So, who are the new voices that are that are creating exciting musical theatre, which is 
going to, to well make I mean mark. look obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda has has given us a whole whole shift um, and and what will be interesting about that is having been so successful relatively early on what he gives us in his career because obviously Sondheim in the 70s wrote all of those extraordinary shows to pay the rent you know so it, will, it remains to be seen what Lin-Manuel will do with you know with the opportunities now because he won't need to pay because he rent. won't need to pay the rent he's a you know? yeah, yeah he could just sit back yeah. and that could be it um, and I really hope it's not I mean you know I think all eyes are on Janine Tesori and go come come through with you know for us with you know we're looking at our female writers I I you know obviously Jason Robert Brown is a really is one of the um, Sondheim proteges in a way and, and can continually brings out interesting material so that's something that I find interesting to look at, but I, but I also go. It doesn't feel like it's one. It doesn't feel like there's this sort of one person leading the charge and amassing lots. It feels like we're going to have like sporadic moment, people having their moment, and one hit wonders. Yeah, a bit, and we're getting that more and more in Australia as well. So that's exciting. That that's become something that we can expect and look forward to, and that there's a much more level playing field and the. The composer, I mean, I think because of places like Whopper and VCA, um, the students go on to, you know, the people who've trained to be performers, they also they also play piano or they also love literature and they write. And so those places end up kind of, because of those places, we've got more and more music theatre in this country, which I think is exciting. Yeah. Of course, I neglected to say Lord Lloyd Webber as well as one of our elder states. Of course. Composers. Uh, now you grew up in Newcastle in New yeah. South Wales, yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? Great. What sort of kid were you? Incredibly shy. Right, really. Oh yeah, still am. Really? Yeah, big time. Well, where does that facade come from? Is it theatre? Bravado. Theatre. Every time I've seen you work foyers and uh huh, uh huh, comes from th- yeah. So so I went to I went to drama school when I was young. You know, like when I say drama school, you know, the, the local amateur theatre school. Um, I went there because my parents were so concerned how I was going to get through life being that shy. They were like, we just have to do something with, with him. Um, and it's one of the things that I have, you know, some people kind of charge me with like, how do you sleep at night knowing that you put 20 people out into the industry each year from VCA and, how, you know, who knows if they will become performers or not. Well, that's the students uh, <laughs> to deal with. It is you know, the students to deal with. Or the careers counsellor at school. It is, it is. But I also go, you know, I do genuinely believe, and I've said this a lot, but, you know, training people in the performing arts really is training people to be better humans. And I know that I'm good at a job interview because I went to drama school, whatever the job interview is for. And I know that I can speak and I can articulate and I can and I have empathy for people largely because of my experience in theatre and so that only happened because I was shy um, and it worked but the shy kid hasn't gone away the shy kid has just worked out how to acknowledge that and then you know move forward in another way Princess Winifred hmm exactly exactly <laughs> just call me her <laughs> now you and I are amused by that the listeners out there going, <laughs> give me, you need a little fact about? sheet you need a little well, fact sheet that's just a little cryptic comment for you to work out <laughs> Lester dear listener um, so uh, lots of community theatre or something growing up how, uh, how yeah. are you cutting your teeth yeah so there was lots of community theatre and you know at the time as I said I was shy Newcastle was uh, um, you know it was 
probably when I think about it, it's interesting to me that so many great people have come out of um, of Newcastle in terms of um, not great people, but great performers, artistic practitioners. Um, there was obviously the city was built around coal and there was a sense of that. Um, but we had the Hunter Valley Theatre Company, which, you know, we had a professional theatre company where I saw Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and things when I was young. Um, I was in the pantomimes and the pantomimes, you know, they they gave me a lot and kept me young. Like I think when I auditioned for Whopper, I, you know, I said a poem the first time I auditioned, you know, like it was like Milson would have been like, what the hell is this? But they kept me young, but they also, um, you know, there were no microphones and you would work out how to use your voice and everything was bold and ridiculous and, um, and uh, very unsubtle. But also there was some really interesting, you know, I did a production of Snoopy when I was young and I remember going, I, I, I understand the humanity of this piece somehow. We did the Golden Mask of Agamemnon when I was in year 11. You know, you know, Greek tragedy. So, you know, mostly it was pantomimes. And I guess I just, you know, you find your tribe. Like everybody who on your podcast says, you find your tribe. And it was at a time, um, you know, that you referred to earlier. Um, it was at a time where I was, you know, my mother had passed away when I was nine. And very suddenly, like overnight, and of an asthma attack. And... I was doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, and I remember, I like, it's so funny how your memories, it, you know, I'm, I've got such a bad memory, but I can tell you moment by moment of the dress, she died during a dress rehearsal, I went home that night and she, she died then, but um, there was that awful scene, you know in the movie with Gene Wilder, and he goes, there's no other way of knowing which direction, he's kind of going down that river and it's scary, and... I was an Oompa Loompa, of course. And um, I remember us being in that, and it was scary. Like, genuinely, as an Oompa Loompa, as an actor, I was scared. And there was this great act, great actor playing Willy Wonka. And, and I thought, this is the weirdest tune. And it's so strange. There was strobe lighting. And that night, when I went home, I woke up during the night, and, and that's when my father was, was standing on the balcony, uh, front porch, and, and um, he told me that my mother had died. And... I remember feeling like I was in that tunnel. There was this sense of the world being all upside down. I had woken up and there was... I woke up because I had an asthma attack, strangely enough, that night. And I woke up to go and get my mum to give me my inhaler and um, tripped over somebody on the ground who wasn't my mother, thank God. It was my cousin. And um, I was so confused about what was going on. And then my dad who I saw was was like standing on the porch he didn't know what was going on he immediately put you know it was one of those machines you know those it wasn't just a puffer it was like a proper yes, thing that we had yeah and it was really loud and you put it on it would it would take over your like it'd be a mask over your face and then the noise would be so loud that you couldn't hear anything in the room and I was sitting there and I watched my dad and my older brother came into the room because I'd woken people up and my older brother had found my mother and my dad had taken her to the hospital. And he, t he told my brother in front of me, but I couldn't hear. So I had the mask on my face and I had this noise, but I could see it. I could see it happening. I could see my brother break down. And I remember going, I just want to stay in the, I don't want to take it off. I don't know. I don't want to take this off. And obviously that's traumatic. Um, and there was a, you know, there's a whole bunch of interesting that my brother said to me the next day. Um, said to all, I have a younger brother as well, we have to be good boys now for dad. 
which is, you know, Peter, you've known me for years. Yes. It's my psychology. Yeah. Um, and Sondheim was very interested in that. Um, and, you know, I then didn't have anything, any way to express myself in the world. My father was and is a remarkable man who, um, who you know, says now, you know, it was Newcastle in the 80s. Like, we didn't know what to do. And I, and nobody talked about her. We took her photos down the next day. Didn't go to her funeral. Nobody talked about her again. We didn't ever talk about her. Were you um, mid-season of Charlie? Yeah. yeah. And I'd so go back and I'd go into that. that you were going to be withdrawn from it or... I no. can't really remember that. I remember doing it. I remember everybody being very weird with me when I came back, like ste- stepping around me and all of that. I remember doing it. Um, and I remember being very scared in that weird section because there's something about that that was the same as that night. Um, and, But I think the interesting thing about that was that, you know, my brother ended up being a you know very famous photographer, my younger brother, a very established visual artist. And I feel like what happened... Uh, inside of that space was that we didn't have language for it so we we found you know my brother started taking photos my younger brother started drawing and I started singing and so I would find music and find story that would parallel with mine somehow so that I could understand what I was going through because we just never talked about it to process your grief Mm. Jeff Blumenkrantz wrote the most amazing song for me called Choose Happy Shine like an Australian idol. Hide the fact that you're suicidal. Choose happy. <laughs> my dear, my dear, my dear. So, has there been any residue of that as you, as you've got older? You know, sort of. We've been shitloads of therapy. Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say I was trying to find the right words yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to to inquire. You know what happened? You know when I met you at Whopper. Yeah. Um, Marcel Schmitz was taking taking a class with us, an and acting teacher. an acting teacher, yeah. fantastic acting teachers, seriously changed my life. Person, and we were doing some exercise where it was like your earliest memory or something, and I couldn't remember anything before nine, and I didn't want to show that memory, so I showed ten, and she took me aside and said, "I I just want you to know very gently that that the experience of you showing ten that's quite quite a bit more." further along than I would have expected and you might want to look at that and so yeah then I went and had therapy and brought my brothers to, and my brothers have done it through their art as well like my, my older brother created an amazing documentary and a huge tribute to my mother called The Black Rose and um, so yeah a lot of therapy and um, uh, and also you know it's interesting I was talking to um, Eleanor who is the lead in um, uh, Anyone Can Whistle and we were talking about our, our things we do before we go on stage and because I did so many years of cabaret where I, it would just be me on stage, um, I just had a thing where I would just always kind of um, have a moment to my mother and sort of go, I, I hand over like trying to remember the words. I, I'll make a list. I'm not going to worry about the words. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. You're going to remember, you know, I'm just going to have fun. I do that to this day. Like there's not, a, there's not a show that goes by that I don't do that as a director or a performer where I go, you're going to take care of everything. I'm just going to enjoy it now. Right. Yeah. She's there watching over you. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you when you went to Whopper? Um, oh, I thought I was really old, Peter, because I auditioned four times. To get in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Did, that, did they keep giving you advice saying, go away yeah. and do this? And... Nelson was amazing with me. Right. I really remember that. And I remember, and I think about it now, um, I talk about, I don't talk about him um, in terms of when we finish VCA, but I do talk a lot about the process and what happens in the face of a no. Um, and... 
I knew I was going to go. And, you know, every year was like, oh, next year. And, you know, I was 17 the first year I, I wow, auditioned. Yeah, a little bit green. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I, say, I, you know I, I sang a poem or something. You know, I did a poem, The Little White Cow, I think it was. Like, you know, what the hell? Um, and then the next year it was like, you know, go away and work on some things and come back and you're going to be great. And I didn't. I went to London and I spent a year working at Pret-a-Manger, making sandwiches and seeing shows. Flew in the day before the Whopper audition. Thought I'd get in. You know, I hadn't done any singing lessons. had done nothing. They were like, come back in a year. Uh, and then I went the following year I thought this is it I'm getting in and I didn't and when I didn't get in my warm-up audition was for Theatre Nepean and so I went out there and then Milson heard through our mutual friend Peter Ross that I was out there and asked Peter for my address sent me a letter and said I really was serious about you coming and then I left Theatre Nepean and and went Um, and it was the right time like I always say that to students like Milson was right it was the right time for me to go and to get the most out of that kind of very rich experience of drama school. So, um, yeah, so I was 20 when I went. I had my 21st with all of my year group. I barely knew them. I'd been there a month and I had my 21st, um, but it was wonderful. And, you know, all those wonderful things that happened at drama school it was great. Yes, I, I sometimes miss those three years. Yeah. They, they were wonderful. The, the opportunity to, to daily have all of those classes and, mm-hmm. and all of that great socializing and just being a student mm. went on fantastic. And the amount of learning you do about the yeah. world, yeah. like just being an adult. And that was one of the great things, of course, was being out of home and just being an adult and being around people who loved this, you know, in the same way. It was really special. And yeah, I think all those people who I went to uni with, regardless of what our relationship was like at the time or has been since, I always feel incredibly warm when I see them again and know how they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And you're quite right. I'm glad you you have that perspective uh, with training of students now. It's it's about yeah training performers, but you're also training people to be good human beings as as well. And completely. Yeah. And if you are going down that path that I'm talking about, with you're going to be a good storyteller, which is what I think VCA is probably. Every every college has their own energy, which is a reflection of the person running it. I'm sure. And um, VCA is a reflection of both myself and Margot Fenley, who was my predecessor, but. If you are going to be, if you're going to value storytelling, and the reason why I think that's important is because I see so many people now who get in, you know, all I want to do is get in Aladdin or whatever. I want to sing that note, kick my leg to there, and I'll get in Aladdin. And then Aladdin, you get in. I mean, I remember Nick Enright saying to me when I didn't get in Les Mis, do you want the good news? And I said, what? And he went, you don't have to do Les Mis, right? Now, what he meant was, I mean, Les Mis is a fantastic show, but the reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard and often it, it's not what you expect it to be. And if you can keep working from storytelling, then I think that that is your, then you do a whole range of work. But the thing that's the thread for you is actually being an artist. We talk about the unfinished artist in motion, continually learning, continually growing. And, you know, whether you're doing The Sound of Music or, you know, whatever, um, it's it's all part of that, and I think there's a richness to it that connects you to it beyond I need to sing that note and keep the leg up that high. Yeah. Tell me about um, the music theatre conference in Tasmania, an annual festival. So mm. you are the artistic director of. Mm-hmm. Um, when did that start? Look, it started. Um, I get my dates wrong because we lose a couple of years there where the, there was just a flat line. Um, it started, I think, in 2018, if I'm right. No, 2019. And I went down as a, a guest teacher. 
I'd never been to Launceston. I went down. Queenie van der Zandt was there. And, you know, Queenie and I are dear friends. And we were like, what is, th- where are we? And I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was, um, I thought there were, it was the first time. And I thought there were some strange sort of um, ideas about what, who, who, what the festival was. And so I soon, because I was interested in it, I became, I went on what they called the um, program advisory group, which was people around the country just to go, you know, this is what you might think about to program. And I remember being very bold one day when they, there was a kind of conversation about what do you think our biggest, um, you know, challenges are in terms of our national view as a festival? And I was like, the biggest challenge is no one knows who you are. Like, nobody knows what this is. What is, why is this in Tasmania? What is this? Um, and then they cancelled the next festival. I couldn't go down because I was supposed to be directing One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, but then the pandemic happened. So they cancelled the next festival. And then during that time, Jane Forrest, who was the artistic director, um, just had a baby and decided to let it go. And so I, I don't know why. I, look, I don't know why I even put my hand up. I'd never gone through that job interview process before. Um, but I did. I was at a tricky point with VCA where I was like, I wonder if I'm going to stay at VCA. I wonder if I've had my time or I'm going to move on. And I thought, I wonder if I could do this. And I went for the interview. And in the interview, I met three extraordinary women at, that seriously, I went, I just need to work with those women. Um, and one of them I can is now a dear friend, Gillian Miles, who has taught me so much about what it is to run a festival. Um, it's the best thing I've ever done. It's it's the most. Uh, I don't even know how to talk about it. Sometimes it's full of it's full of classes. Yes, it's full of performances. It's beautiful in Launceston because everyone's away from home, so everybody's engaged in something. And I, when I did Sunday in the Park with George at Whopper in 2018, the cast gave me. You know, George has a little red book. He's got a red book that happens in the play. Um, so I went back to Whopper and directed it there. And the cast gave me a little red book with a whole bunch of, you know, you know, you give the director little notes at the end. And I, by that stage, I'd done enough shows that when I looked through the red book, I could, I could link where my value was as a director. I could see where it was because people would say the same thing in reviews from the cast. And in a way, the festival has become an extension of that thing. And I've created it in a way that I feel like it's, really about community and that's the thing I love about the theatre um, obviously to do with you know the story I was telling before as well about about family and connection and story um, and so we have wonderful people we had Philip Quast and Chloe Dallimore and uh, we've had Rob Mills and Gemma Ricks and oh just amazing you know Simon Gleeson Nat O'Donnell Callum Francis it's been amazing I love it great hmm. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to celebrate the form in Australia and also uh, offer some professional development. Oh, completely. So there's classes, but there's also for... And you know what, what I find extraordinary is that, you know, I, you know the, the young people, they love it. They're like, this is incredible. I get to work with all of these people and people literally get a lot of jobs out of it. Natalie Gilholm's a great casting director and she casts people out of that festival over and over again, um, as do I. Um, but what I love about it is that Michael Tyack and Roger Hodgman find it completely earth-shatteringly beautiful. There's something very specific about Launceston. There's something about Tasmania. And there's something about the way... There's a whole bunch of performances. So whether that be like a standard performance, like we did Songs for New World, that's great. But we'll also do... We'll match 
gin and song. So Natalie Gamsu will sing the song that goes with that gin that is made by that gin maker who also happens to be a theatre director in Launceston. And, you know, it's those things. It's performances in the in the parks and in the cafes. Like, you know, you know for the most of our lives, we're the odd ones out, the music theatre people. Yeah. In Launceston, for one week in May every year, the world is ours. Like, the people who are not in music theatre are the strange ones walking the streets. Like, it's <laughs> Disneyland for us, Peter. You must come down. You'd love it. I will go down and have a, have a look. You'd love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you graduated from WAPA mm. as a performer, mm. did, did you think that teaching or directing might have been in your future? Nah. Or, no. No, nah. not at all? Not Never. At all? It was like coming out. Everybody knew before I did. Right. Uh, it was like, uh, no, if I had thought about... I didn't know enough. And, you know, my relationship with directors, I just idolised them so much and I needed them as an actor, which made me go, well, I can't possibly be them. So, no, it it all happened by a bunch of happenstance and a lot of relationships, you know, where, which is what I always talk about is, you know, well, you were there. We were both at at Whopper together. The people who were in that program, they all go on to have these amazing lives in the arts. and then That aren't necessarily as performers. Yeah, yeah, and then they help you along and you get these different gigs. So, no, it was all a surprise to me. You know what I miss? What? <laughs> I'm going to miss something else. We talk about the, these, the, the advent of new musicals and the, mm. the form that they're taking. I miss overtures. Oh, God, yeah. Of that course. That seems to be something that has just been jettisoned from new work. When was the last time we had one? Producers? Possibly, yeah, maybe. Like yeah, yeah, I remember. And I remember it being quite a thing. The producers had an overture. Yeah, yeah. of course, yeah, of yeah. course. I miss that as well. Yeah. Particularly, you know, those older shows, and that's how they'd set up the themes and all of that. And also, you got a chance to listen to the orchestration because, you know, I feel remiss already that I talked about Mr. Sondheim and I didn't mention Mr. Tunic. You know, like who's just you know in Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations of his. I mean, they they go hand in hand. They're I think amazing. there's been a um, a new book released recently oh, really? on Jonathan Tunick. Oh, yeah, wow. which is uh, worth wow. a look at. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Sondheim didn't wasn't fond of an overture. I suppose we get them in West Side Story, and uh, well, it, it wasn't him. Yeah, he just wrote the yeah. Lyrics. But funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Does did because <laughs> we're talking past tense? Anyone can whistle have an overture. Uh, it has what's called a prelude, um, but anyone can whistle has a lot of of music in it. A lot. It was done in three acts and has a lot of dance music in it. Um, uh, you know, I, I tend to think too much. One of the things about Anyone Can Whistle is that's problematic is it's about too many things. And Sondheim says himself, we were trying to be the smart kids in the class, and they were, but the audience couldn't keep up. Um, so there's no there's no overture. Uh, it's a really interesting orchestration. Um, something like, for the full thing, it's something like five cellos but no violins. Wow. Like really, really interesting. So after a specific sound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don Walker, I think, was the... Are you superstitious in the theatre? Yep. Yeah, you are? Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. It's nice to meet somebody who is. <laughs> yeah, I am. So no whistling and no, oh, no. no Scottish play? Oh, my God, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm superstitious to the point where I remember in The Sound of Music, I made Bert Newton laugh when we... And making Bert Newton laugh had to just have his... You know, you make Bert... He was the king of comedy. You yeah, make him laugh. Yeah, yeah. And we had a mic pack change next to each other. And I remember going, oh, my God. I'm in this show for the next 18 months. I'm going to have to do that every night. I'm going to do that every night. It was part of the thing I had to prepare every day. It was how to make Bert Newton laugh at that point. Oh, yeah, superstitious. And June Salter, we used to have, a, we used to have a, um, an entrance, and I did Sound of Music for 18 months. We did an improvisation every night before we went on. Every wow. night. Wow. Right, just in the wings, just a quick thing she would do, and, she, and we'd walk on with that. 
And we didn't need to do it after performance number X, but we did it every night. Oh, yeah. Yes, it's funny, those routines which, which take place, take shape. and uh, Look, I also come. quite like it because it's part of the magic of the theatre. Yeah. Like, we can go, well, that's ridiculous. No one's going to die if you whistle and da da You know, like, yeah. you can go, of course. But why wouldn't you? Because we're storytellers and it's great stories, yeah. you know, yeah. so why not? <laughs> How about re- reviews? Do you read reviews and do you take note of them? Or... Yes, you I do. do. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, I think... You know, as a director, you don't get very much feedback. You really don't get a chance to... Talk. I mean, I have I have my circle of people and I usually invite Jason Langley to the final dress run and my people to come and give me some feedback. But I find it really interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I don't get... I mean, I, of course I'll get affected if they're, if they're not... if they're negative, but it's, it interests me. And I mean, when they're really bad, that's when they're funny. Like one of the... Um, uh, reviews I had for Assassins, which was the first show I directed in earnest, really, um, said that, at, you know, the, the cast must have bowed and then done the standard, like, you know, refer to the... To the, the, to the Yeah, to the bio box and saw me and apparently they all got misty because that's the kind of, you know, I kind of am that person in a, in a cast. And the reviewer noted it and said, look, I've seen him sing and clearly the cast think he's wonderful. And uh, he's a lovely singer and a good actor. Um, but just because you have been to the dentist doesn't mean you should get in the chair and do fillings. I was like, okay. I was like, all right then. Um, but I think, oh, well, that's fine. Like, you know, when they're, it's, you know, I've always found them interesting to hear other people's opinions because nobody's really honest with you. And also when you're, when you've done a show, the way marketing works is you can't, I, I think it's a shame that we can't talk about where our shows fail. You know, I think that's a really interesting discussion about where things don't quite get to where you wanted. And I wish there was more, there was more of a, an opportunity in our industry to sort of talk about that in a way. Yeah. That's a little cryptic segue into <laughs> the next point of conversation. Um, tick, tick, boom. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Larson's. Yep. Final show? No, Rent was his final show. Yeah. yeah. So this this was a kind of this was a sort of a one man monologue really about so on the way while he was writing Rent that he would perform himself, um, and then it really got attention, of course, because Rent was so huge that there was the standard like what did what did he write before? So this is his Joseph that they dug out after Superstar, essentially, um, and you know I'm I'm lucky because it's been in my life for quite a while because I played Jonathan in the first professional um, production of Tick, Tick, Boom. Although I don't remember much about it, to be honest. Um, but I had to, in recent auditions for it, read the... read the Because I like to read with them. I like to get up in the space and kind of play with the actors and see what, what, what we're going to find. And um, so there was occasional, you know, things where I was reading the lines thinking... And there was one woman who came in and said... Um, I saw you. I saw you in this part, and I thought, "Oh my God, that's so bizarre. That is so weird." <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm delighted to to work on it. Um, it's a it's a kind of tyrant piece. I can feel that because it's about artists and because it's about um, New York, about New York, yeah, and because it's scrappy. It's not like I don't really want to direct My Fair Lady. It's so beautifully structured and done that, that they don't need me. They don't need me. Whereas Tick Tick Boom is is sketchy and gives you a lot of space for 
um, really bringing things to life in a conceptual way, um, really working with actors. I mean, one thing I love about the play version is that there are only three actors, so two of them have to play many, many roles. And that's, I mean, I love the business of transformation. I just think that's funny and silly and, and the best. And it's a piece about the creative process mm. too, isn't mm-hmm. it? Similar to Sun in the Park with George. Exactly. Your other big favourite. Exactly. Um, There's so. another one called Preludes, which I was set to direct here just before the crash, but we never got Dave, Dave Malloy, which I really hope to direct, which is about Rachmaninoff and writer's block. Um, so yeah, there's something in there's there's certainly you there's, feel you have a key to unlock. Those, I think so. There, you know, Nick Enright said to me that all his pieces were about family. He said everything's about family for him, and mine are about family, children, and art. Mine are about either of those two things. So it's only a three-hander, is it? Yeah. 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 And have you cast it yet, or you're about to? Have just cast it. Oh, okay. Have just cast it, um, and very thrilled with that. Really hard thing to do nowadays is to you know there's so many shows. There's 22 musicals happening next year. You're going to have so many podcasts. I know 22 musicals, Um, and to find the right people for this particular show who have the the kind of nimble quality that can just go bam they don't go off stage they'd literally turn around and they're another person and that's the best kind of theater um and then sing a rock score eight shows a week and and also it has such heart and of course you might recall in the show Sondheim leaves a voicemail yeah when i when i used to do that when i was i remember that moment very clearly because i would just cry Sondheim left a voicemail, and I was Jonathan Larson for that moment, you know. Um, Adrian's story you've worked with uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit from mm-hmm. Storyboard uh, Entertainment mm-hmm. and a few of his shows, Chess yep. and uh, Barnum. Did you do Follies? Did Follies, yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so obviously that's a great creative relationship that yeah. you've, you've established. Which is so lucky. Yeah. Because I don't think those exist that much anymore. Like Adrian programs his shows and programs me as director. Like that's what happens. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that's as random as anything. You know, this is these happy accidents. I did Assassins and Adrian saw it. I didn't know that he'd seen it. And I went to a production of a Sondheim in um, in Melbourne, a big production. And I went to the party afterwards. And there's all these people standing around. And Todd Strike, who had been in um, South Pacific, which Adrian was an executive producer on for Opera Australia, he said, he introduced us all, and he said to Adrian, what did you think of the show tonight? And Adrian said, oh, I didn't really like it. He said, I'm, I'm yet to see a really good Sondheim in Australia. And he went, oh, sorry, actually, Assassins was really good. You were in it, weren't you, Todd? And Todd said, he directed it. And Adrian went, do you want to have coffee? And literally that's how it happened. Great. Isn't that amazing? Right place, right time. Yeah, yeah. really, right place, right time. And that's been my whole life, my yeah. whole life. And, and um, you know, some of the ideas are mine and some of them are Adrian's, and... He's very loyal to me, and we have a way of working together um, that seems to work. And you know, and he also works for Crossroads, so he works on those shows, and then does storyboard. Um, and he's very passionate about about Australian creatives. And you know, there's not a lot of room for Australian creatives at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So it's I'm very lucky. So what about bringing some of those shows to Sydney? Because uh, a lot of those I know. shows that you've done with with uh, storyboard are, are just Melbourne. And, yeah. And that's it. Well, I guess it becomes a whole other conversation about about the expenses when you when you tour it, and and Adrian tends to do boutique shows. Um, I mean, we did 
take chess everywhere. So chess went around Australia, but it didn't come to Sydney because of availability of theatres. So you know what it's like getting a tour together. We had to do some bizarre thing like play a Monday night in Queensland or something because it was right. all we could get. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's nothing against Sydney. It's just it's just there's often many the, the theatres are often full and um, we don't you know chess. If chess ever comes back, I know that there's an idea to bring it here. I was very proud of the production. So um, I think it's, you know, it's on the list, but yeah, it's very strange. My parents have to keep flying to Melbourne to come and see your shows. Yes, yes. <laughs> tick, tick, boom at uh, the Comedy Theatre in, uh, in February and then QPAC uh, Playhouse. So we're either going to go to Melbourne or Brisbane to, see, to see the show, but I'm sure it's going to be wonderful like uh, all of the other splendid work that you have given us, Tyrone Park. Um, lovely to do this chat. Have you had a good time? Oh, it's so easy. I'll have to give it's you so the, easy. the Stages t-shirt. <laughs> I want a tote bag. Can you make oh, a little tote bag? All right, I'll have to get that done. Yes, I've thank got you. plenty of t-shirts there, but um, <laughs> uh, the tote bag we'll have to go for. Um, well, um, I'm glad that uh, any, anyone can whistle. went really, really oh, well. It was massive a, hit. It was massive a, it was hit. It was a great show. I loved every minute of it. It was fantastic. Thank you, Tyron. Thank you. So nice to see you. Casting announcements for Tick Tick Boom will be made later in 2022. Tick Tick Boom is produced by impresario Adrian Story for Storyboard Entertainment and it is directed by my guest today, Tyron Park. Tick Tick Boom will play Melbourne at the Comedy Theatre from the 1st to the 5th of February and then Brisbane at QPAC from the 4th to the 5th of March in 2023. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. You know that by now, don't you? And don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or where you find your favourite podcasts. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.